This audio is from South Fellowship Church. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit southfellowship.org. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell, and I shall dwell, and I shall dwell, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Pray. Wow, Jesus, there's just something about that psalm, that song, that poem that just resonates with who we are, who we need you to be, and the way that you meet us in a very real way, in real life. And so we thank you, we praise you, we lift high your name today. and pray that you would do something in our midst, in our time together, that we simply cannot do on our own. Spirit, we invite you, mess with us, please, in a holy, beautiful way, we pray. Amen. Amen. It's hard to imagine what it might have been like to be anointed as the next king at the age of, oh, 11. I mean, I don't know what you were up to at the age of 11. I know what I was up to. I was um, obsessed with two things, uh, baseball and the beach. That was it. I mean, my life revolved around hitting and throwing a ball and playing in the sand riding waves. What about you? My guess is that you weren't getting ready to run a nation, just throwing it out there. Uh, But that was and is the story of uh, King David. At the age of 11, 12, 13, somewhere in his sort of preteen ages, he was, by by Samuel, he was anointed as the next coming king of Israel. Now, there was only one problem. It was a pretty big problem, and it was a problem that got him in trouble over the course of the next few years, and that problem was there was already a king. He was handsome, he was tall, he was powerful, and he was a little insecure, So David's life as a preteen gets started off with a bang. He's anointed as the next king, and then he goes back to shepherding sheep. And then you may know the next sort of big milestone in his story. There happened to be a little little giant in a valley whose name was Goliath, right? David comes on the scene. He's delivering snacks to his brothers, finds himself in the middle of the battlefield, takes Goliath down, and everybody goes, well, this kid's got something going for him, right? And and Saul, the king, notices this as well. So David goes from, from the pastures to the palace, and he becomes an attendant for the king. He becomes an armor bearer for the king. And he starts to rise in both power and prominence. And as he does that, King Saul starts to get a little bit more and more insecure. So David goes from being a little shepherd boy to being a giant slayer to being prominent in the king's household. That's quite the ascension, is it not? 
I mean, that's, that's quite the storyline. If, if we're taking sign-ups, I'm going, well, count me in. Count me in. Like, like that, that sounds like a storyline I'd live. And if you continue on in David's life, here's what happens. As quickly as he gets to the mountaintop, he finds himself in the valley. You ever been there? As quickly as he gets to the mountaintop, he finds himself in the valley. He's an attendant in the courts of the king. He's an armor bearer for the king. And he starts to had develop a following. And so instead of having food delivered to him in the courts of the king, he starts having spears thrown at him. Ever been there? No? Okay, me neither, right? He goes from the pasture to the palace to on the run from crazy, insecure Saul in the desert, And his life, if you were to sort of chart the arc and course of his life, his life is a series of really high highs followed with really low lows. I think one of the reasons we love reading the poetry of this king is because he invites us not only into his highs, but into his lows. He invites us into this world that you and I live in, and, and we know. And so if the scriptures paint for us a world different than this uh, beauty mixed with sorrow, this joy mixed with pain, if the scriptures didn't point out, there's going to be some really high highs and there's going to be some really low lows through its characters that it presents to us, the narratives it invites us into, the poetry that it gives us of what it looks like to live a life of faith. If it didn't invite us into really high highs and really low lows, we would know we can't trust that because it's not what life is really like. I can remember in February of 2013, my son had just been born. We were sitting in the hospital room and uh, my dad helped my mom get into the elevator and walk into the hospital room. And my mom got to hold my son for the very first time. She could barely walk at this point. There was no diagnosis on her brain condition. We knew things were going downhill. And it was this moment, I don't know if you've ever been there, but this moment where beauty and life intersected with pain and death in a way that I couldn't describe in words. And somehow, I had to choose, if God, God, if you're present in the miracle of this little baby, somehow you have to be present in the valley of the shadow of death also. As my mom walks to meeting you face to face, and my son is born, and this mixture, this just mishmash of sorrow and pain, beauty and joy found itself in one picture for me, my mom dying, holding my son just being born. I thought, that's, that's what life is like, isn't it? This sort of this, this mixture And if the scriptures don't speak to that, they don't speak to real life. Now, luckily for you and me, they do. And one of the reasons that this song, this poem, this ancient Hebrew poetry has captured the hearts and minds of imaginations and and, and hearts and minds for, for centuries, for millennia, is because it invites us into both the joy and the pain. Listen to the way King David does this says this, Psalm 23, verse 1. 
David writes, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, as if to say, I'm satisfied. He's good. He feeds my soul. He leads my life. He says, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He makes me lie down, not by force, but by favor. He's just so good. I long to be with him, to be near him. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He, he brings me back, is what David writes. He brings me home. He carries me home. When I wander, when I stray, he finds me, and that shepherd is so good. He hunts me down, puts me on his shoulders, and brings me back into the fold. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, if David simply stops there, none of us remember this psalm. Because we're going, well, there's a lot more to life, David, than just green pastures, still waters, quiet streams, skipping through a field, life's always good, life's always awesome. David, you don't know what I've been through. Now, luckily, David downshifts on the freeway in uh, fifth gear, and here's what he throws at you. Even though, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and you almost want to pause and go, <clears throat> David, you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to go from still water, green pasture, paths of righteousness to valley of death that quickly. <laughs> but then, you know, we look at our life and go, no, 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 you, you are willing to, you, you, are, you are able to go there. In fact, you have to go there because that's our story, isn't it? That's the story of Humanity in many ways. We can find ourselves on the mountaintop one day and in the valley low the next and wonder what in the world happened to us. David goes from warm fuzzies to deep valleys real quick, doesn't he? And I think that's what clings to our soul about this psalm. Is he's able to invite us into his story. He's able to invite us into God's story, and he's able to retell our story in such a way where we're able to see it a little bit better. We wrestle with this, don't we? This even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death line, we wrestle with that. I'll just say it like this. I wrestle with that. Philosophers wrestle with that. Theologians wrestle with that. Listen to this author, the way that he puts it. His name is J.L. Mackey. And he wrote a book called The Miracle of Atheism. And in it, he says, if a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil. But because there's so much unjustifiable, pointless evil in the world, the traditional good and powerful God couldn't exist. Just couldn't possibly exist. Some other God or no God may exist, but not the traditional God. So here's what he says, this problem of evil, this problem of pain, this problem of um, a sorrow that's mixed with joy is just unreconcilable with a God who's good and powerful and loving. You ever turn back to him and had that conversation? Like, come on, God, if you're, if you're good, why can't we get pregnant? I mean, come on, come on, God, if, if you're good, why did I lose this friend? 
If you're good and if you're powerful, why did the marriage fall apart? If you're good, if you're powerful, why did I lose a job? If you're good, isn't this our story? And I think what Mackie loses sight of and what maybe you and I lose sight of too is that if we're going to propose something is good, we're, we're automatically starting with some moral plumb line, aren't we? And if we're going to say something's good and something's bad, that goodness and badness came from somewhere, didn't it? So uh, philosophers, theologians will point to that and say, no, 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 you can't have good and bad if you don't first have God. The second thing that I'd point out to Mackie and others who may wrestle with pointing their finger back at God is, hasn't God used some of the darkest things in your life to bring some of the brightest light out of your life? Just by show of hands, how many of you have been there? Where you might have said something like, I would never choose to walk through that again. I don't want to do it over. But what God did in and out of that is absolutely breathtakingly glorious and beautiful. See, I think Mackie and others, maybe they lose sight of just how resourceful God is, not in preventing the pain, but in utilizing it to grow us, bear fruit in us, and invite us to become and walk more in the way of our Messiah. I love, I love that David goes from quiet streams, green pastures, paths of righteousness to even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death in one sentence because here's his invitation to you and to me today. His invitation is really simple. It's that walking with Jesus or trusting God as the good shepherd means that as seasons change, my faith remains. That's what it means. It means that God can't be God only when I'm anointed king or only when I slay Goliath, this is what David's saying, or only when I'm in the palace eating good food, protected, provided for. God can't be God then and then in the next moment cease to be God because I find myself wandering in the desert or having javelins thrown at me. I have to either trust this shepherd in the good seasons and the bad or I have to trust him not at all. I want to propose to you as well this morning that walking with this good shepherd means that as seasons change, our faith remains. But that's a hard thing, isn't it? That's a really hard thing in the reality of a life that's mixed beauty and pain, trial and victory, joy and sorrow. It's a hard thing to say. In every season, God, in every season, I want my faith to remain. Let me, let me invite you back into Psalm 23, verse 4, because David's going to do something wonderful in this psalm, and he's going to invite us how to engage in the struggle. <laughs> See, Psalm 23, and I think one of the reasons it stood the test of time is not because it gives you all the answers. And while we think that's what we want, we think we want answers, but God knows we need presence. And this passage, this scripture, this chapter, this poem invites us not to have all the answers, not for people to go, well, I know why suffering happens, and here's why, X, Y, and Z. We all know in the midst of suffering, that's completely unhelpful. Can, can we all agree on that? Have you ever been in the hospital and some, had somebody who knows it all come to visit you and felt like, you know, that was really refreshing and great? No, you haven't, and you won't, because it isn't. What you want is somebody to come 
and to enter into your pain and to be with you. And that's the picture that David paints of the good shepherd. Not, of a know-it-all, not as a know-it-all, but as a present in it all. Look at his perspective. Here's what he says. Even though I walk through the valley. So, so here's what he doesn't say. <clears throat> if I happen to encounter some deep valleys along the way, and if I happen to encounter pain, and if I happen to encounter suffering, and if life happens to get a little bit difficult at some point along the way, if that's a sort of a hypothetical, throw it out there type of situation, not for David. David's like, deep valleys, dark shadows, and death are going to be part of my, and I'll say it to you, and your reality. Here's what he'd invite you to believe. In the midst of every season, and trust Jesus in the midst of every season, pain is inevitable. It's part of the human condition. It's part of living in a fallen world. It's part of being alive. And it's an okay part of being alive. It's not easy. But in some ways, at some points, it reminds you, I am alive. So for David, as a shepherd in the Middle East, they would have these canyons that would, be charted, that would be carved out by flash floods that would come through a region. And over the course of years, these canyons would grow deeper and deeper and deeper. Think um, canyons in Utah, think some of those slot canyons, because some of the canyons that I read about in the Middle Eastern region during this time would have been about five miles long and no more than 20 feet wide at their widest part. So as a shepherd leading their sheep, leading his sheep through this dark, deep valley, here's what was in a shepherd's mind. Is a storm going to come and wipe out my sheep? Is a bandit going to come? And I know we're all scared of bandits these days. I'm just kidding. I don't know. Bandit. But that's what the terminology was back then. <laughs> bandit. So if a bandit's going to come and steal all the sheep, <laughs> we'll get there. If a, if a band is going to come and steal all the sheep, if a thief's going to come and destroy and decimate, and in a place where you can't go anywhere and you can't even turn around, David says, that's sometimes where the shepherd leads you. Can I get an amen? But there's some seasons in life where you don't feel like, I have any options, I don't know where to go, the pain's pressing in, the sorrow is hard to endear, and God, I don't see how you're present in this. But see, theologically, David has zero problem with that. He has zero problem with, man, on one, at one moment I'm in green pastures, lying down, fed, protected, life's good, and in the next moment I'm in the deepest, darkest valley. He has no problem believing that God is present in both situations. In fact, listen to the Psalm 34, verse 18, where the psalmist writes, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those crushed in spirit, as if to say that maybe those are the moments in the deep, dark valley, the shadow of death. Maybe those are the moments God is closest, God is most present, that God is most available, or that I'm most in tune to the fact, God, you better be out front because I have no clue where I'm going and I don't know how to navigate this. 
You see, the good shepherd knows where he takes the sheep before he takes them. He's not an aimless wanderer. He's a good shepherd. And when he leads him through the valley of the shadow of death, he leads him there for one of two reasons. One, because that may be where the best or only food source resides. Or he knows that that's what they need to walk through in order to get to the mountain peaks. One of two reasons he takes you there. See, we typically will say back to God something like, God, if you're good and if you're present and if you're in charge, there's no way this would have happened. And I think sometimes the good shepherd wants to say back to us, no, 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 no. It's because I'm good and because I'm in charge and because I'm powerful and because I know and because I've walked this course before you, that's why I lead you there. And so we'll say after something like, God, you did something, you burst something, you worked something in me that could never have possibly happened without that thing, that hardship, that sorrow, that trial, and you were good in it all. But hey, look up at me for a second, friend. If you and I are going to walk with Jesus, the good shepherd, even as seasons change, our faith remains, if that's the perspective we're going to have and hold, we need to be aware that the life that we live, the world that we live in, pain is simply inevitable. We could go around this story or this, this room and tell story upon story of how, yep, been there. Yep, absolutely. Walked through that. Don't know how I made it, but God, you were good in the midst of it. Pain is inevitable. Here's the next thing David says. Here's the next thing he says. Even though I, what's the word? Walk through the valley of the shadow of death. As if to say, I find myself in this deep, dark valley, this painful situation, this sorrowful situation, but I'm not going to stop there. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep walking. You know, the worst thing you can do in the midst of pain and sorrow is to say back to God, God, I'm not going any further. God, I'm not walking with you anymore. God, I can't, I can't trust you anymore. How are you good in this? I mean, here, let, let's talk for a second, just heart to heart. I, man, I've been there. The morning my dad called me to tell me my mom had passed away, I, I was, man, I'm looking back at God going, hey, I'm a pastor. Like, if you don't give me a miracle, who are you going to give a miracle to? And if you can't shield me from pain, are you going to shield them from pain? And how am I going to stand up here and say you're good week after week, Sunday after Sunday? And my tendency is to stop and sink anchor. The worst thing you can do in the valley of the shadow of death is set up camp. And some of you have. Some of us have, where the pain has just been too much, the suffering has just been too much, it's been too real, it's been too hard. We forgot that through valleys, as we come out of them, God often leads us to mountaintops. And we've just said back to him, God, I can't believe that you're good enough in the midst of this to continue to walk with you. Pain is inevitable. Persistence or perseverance is essential. So David says, I'm going to walk through the valley. I'm not going to stop. 
I'm not going to set up camp in the valley. I'm going to keep marching, keep going, keep trusting, because the only hope worth having is a hope not that walks around pain and walks around sorrow and dances around. The only hope worth having is a hope that walks through it. I love the way that Winston Churchill said it. I think it was brilliant. He said, success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It's the courage to continue that counts. Look up at me for a moment, friend. If you're in the valley, keep going. Keep walking. Keep trusting. Keep hoping. Keep loving. Keep persevering. Keep pushing forward. Um, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to one of his apprentices, Timothy, he, he'll reframe the discussion. He'll say this. He's going to address, David does, actually flip back to Psalm 34 or Psalm 23 with me. Here, here's what David says. He continues that by saying, here's one of the things that can make you set up camp in the valley quicker than anything else. One word. What is it? Fear. Right. We fear what's on the horizon. We fear what's in back of us. We fear our past. We fear our present. We fear our future. And so we start to say, well, maybe, just maybe, it's easier to live in fear. And here's what David says. It's really definitive. I will fear how much? No evil. Now, I was thinking about that this week. As a Christian subculture, we do not do this well. In fact, we sell tons of like um, subscriptions to magazines and radio programs and TV shows. We use fear in order to sell products. Have you ever noticed this? I mean, just listen to the radio for a little bit. If people didn't fear monger, what would they talk about on some radio stations? So I will fear no ISIS. You ever heard that? I will fear no economic downturn. I will fear no job loss. I will fear no call from my doctor. I refuse to be paralyzed by fear, and I'm going to ground my anchor in faith. That's what King David says. And he makes it so definitive that he, his, his prospect is simply this. You can choose to either follow the good shepherd or you can choose to live in fear, but you cannot do both. You can't do both. Listen to the way that the Apostle Paul writes it to his apprentice, Timothy. Here's what he says. He says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear. So if, if we live in fear, if we dwell in fear, if fear shapes us and fear guides us, we can know for certain that is not from God. You don't, you don't, need, to, you don't need to pray about that. You don't, I mean, it's just true. It's right there. If you live in fear, it's not from God. It's from the enemy. He loves that you live in fear. He loves that we have these books that are written that will make us just absolutely live in, oh my gosh, America's just going downhill quick. It's a moral decline. Oh no. Listen, is there a moral decline? Absolutely, yeah. There is. Should we do something about it? Absolutely. Yes, we should. Should we react in fear? No way. No way. Absolutely not. And I'll show you why. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but he gave us a spirit of, what's the word? Power. 
right? So you can either live in fear or you can live in power, but you can't live in both. So if the situations that terrify you, if you actually want to make a difference in them, you can't make your decisions based on fear. Because automatically, when we make decisions based on fear, what we do is we unplug ourselves from the source of power that we're designed to live connected to. Because God says, that's not my spirit at work. That's not my presence at work. And you're acting out of fear, and you can get somewhere with that, but you can't get somewhere with me. Because that's not my spirit I put inside of you. Here's the way I look at it. Fear causes me to want to control. God's presence causes me to want to trust. So I can either control or trust. I can either live in faith and fear or fear, but I can't live in both. So Paul says to Timothy, come on, that's not, that's not from the Spirit of God. The second thing he says, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love. Do you know it's impossible to love somebody you're afraid of? It's impossible. You can either fear your enemies or you can pray for them. You can love them. You can live in the way of Jesus towards them. But these two things are at at odds with each other is what Paul writes to Timothy. God's spirit that he put inside you isn't a spirit of fear, he says, but it's a a spirit of love, of self-sacrificial laying down your life for your enemy type of love. And if you fear somebody, you can't love them. You can only react to them, but you can't love them. Finally, he says, uh, so God didn't give you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Have you ever stopped to think about how many dumb decisions you've made based out of fear? I mean, fear makes us make decisions, causes us to do things that in hindsight, when we look in the rearview mirror, we go, I don't know if I'd do that again. Uh, there's a reason that when you're going on a roller coaster, there's a reason they don't take your picture as you're clicking up. Because you'd look like this. So they do take your picture when your mouth's like this, right? And your hair's like crazy, and you're, you look ridiculous, right? Because you look ridiculous when you're scared. We all do. We make dumb decisions when we're terrified. We all do. And what Paul's saying to Timothy and what I think David would say to us is simply this. You can have a clear mind and live courageously or you can have a cluttered mind and live fearfully. He says, I will fear no evil. And hey, here's the thing. You can look. Maybe there's a footnote at the bottom of your Bible that says, accept this evil. But at mine, mine, there wasn't. So if yours has one, we can talk about your translation afterwards. Just come let me know, and I'll tell you it's garbage, okay? Because there's, there's no footnote. There's no, you fear no evil except this kind of evil. None. None. What kind of evil are you fearing? What kind of evil has its claws in you? What kind of evil is driving your decision-making, depleting you of power, rendering you unable to love? causing you to make some decisions you might look back on and go, I don't know if I should have done that. 
See, pain is inevitable. Persistence, it's living without fear. Perseverance is absolutely 100% essential. And then listen to where David lands his plane. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear how much? No evil. For you are with me. So here's what he says, God, you're present when they anointed me king at the age of 11 or 12 or 13. You were present when I slayed the giant on that, in that valley at the age of 17-ish. You were present when I moved from the pasture to the palace, and God, even in the valley of the shadow of death, even in my desert wanderings, even when I didn't know where my next meal was going to come from, and the armies were bearing down on me, they were searching for me, there was a bounty over my head, even then, in every situation and every season, God, my faith will remain because because I'm confident you are present with me and you're for me. For some of you, that's a word this morning. You're walking through that valley and you've lost sight of him. Look up at me for a second. Look up at me. You've lost sight of him. I can assure you he hasn't lost sight of you. The good shepherd's saying, no, 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 no. I know where my sheep are. I'm with my sheep. I'm out front of my sheep. I'm leading my sheep. I'm good even in Yes. So what does it really mean, though? Like, what does it really mean to trust and know and abide in the fact that God is present? I'm going to give you four things. I'm going to shoot them off really quick. One, it's knowing a love that conquers fear. That's abiding in his presence. In John chapter 15, Jesus says, abide in, invites us to abide in my love. It's knowing a love that conquers fear. Tim Keller in his great book, The Reason for God, says, listen, we cannot explain, based on our theology of who God is, we cannot explain why every bad, terrible, heartbreaking situation happens. We don't have an answer for why it happens oftentimes. But we can know for sure. We can know for sure one of the reasons that it doesn't happen or one of the reasons that um, we can know for sure that it's not because God isn't present, and it's not because God isn't loving, and it's not because God isn't good. And he said the follower of Jesus needs only to look to the cross to rest assured of that. Because on the cross, he proves, I'm with you. I'm for you. I'm not going to just watch you walk through the darkest valley. I'm going to lead you there. I'm going to give my very life for yours, I'm going to redeem you. I call you by name. You're mine. When we walk with Jesus, having a, knowing his presence, it means that we know a love that conquers fear. Second, it means we know a joy that endures. The scriptures say in Hebrews chapter 12 that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross as if to say he knew what was coming and so he was willing to walk through what was present. Do you know what's coming for you, friend? A love that conquers fear, a joy that endures a power that overcomes. Followers of Jesus are confident in the words of Christ where he says to his followers, oh, sure, 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 sure. Tribulation is coming. Trials are coming. Pain is coming. I'm not going to circumvent that. I'm not going to try to avoid that or ignore that. It's coming, he says, but rejoice. I have overcome the world. A love that conquers fear a joy that endures, a power that overcomes, and a resurrection that renews all things. 
I love the way that Kenneth Bailey, the great author, put it when he says this. He says, the cross and resurrection are the platform on which good shepherd stands to announce his vision for the future. Many ways he's taking from Lewis, C.S. Lewis, who says, they say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven once attained will work backwards and turn, this is great, and turn even that agony, that death, that pain, that tribulation, that sorrow, that suffering, into glory. So here's where Paul invites us to sink our anchor this morning. He says, hey, pain is inevitable. Perseverance is essential. And presence, God's presence, his love, his joy, his power that overcomes, and his resurrection that transforms everything is possible, available in every situation. Will you abide in that today? Will you abide in that? See, because your life, like mine, is probably a mixture, a mixture of pain and joy, a mixture of beauty and chaos, a mixture of God, where are you, and a mixture of God, praise your beautiful name because your blessings flow. And here's what, here's what David says, even though I walk through the valley, whatever that valley is for you, even though I walk through it, I'm going to fear nothing. Nothing. Because my God is good. And he's for me. A friend of mine, maybe a friend of yours too, um, her name is Jen. She was recently um, diagnosed with a health condition. I'm going to let her share about it. But as I thought about this passage... Uh, her story came to mind. I'd love for you to hear it and, and be invited into what might it look like to really walk with this king through dark valleys. Will you guys roll that for me? I'm Jen Orr, married to Jonathan Orr, and I have two boys, Jacob and Joshua. Jonathan and I were married um, November 1st, 2003. I'm a Colorado native. Um, I grew up 10 miles from here. Um, we've been at South Fellowship nine years, probably, um, and have just loved it here and really feel like it's our family. In August, I started coughing, and everybody kind of had the cough, and um, it was just a cough that lingered um, for quite some time, and um, mine just never went away. But then in late February, I started coughing up just very small amounts of blood. And so um, my doctor asked me to go into urgent care. Then they did a chest x-ray and the chest x-ray showed um, quite a bit. I was diagnosed with adenocarcinoma or lung cancer. Um, and it, it had originated in my right lung. Um, but by the time we caught it, it had spread to my lymph node in my chest and then spread to my left lung as well. Um, so um, after all these tests and 
MRIs and PET scans and um, biopsies, I was um, diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. The first week or two, I was terrified. Um, I, I couldn't sleep very well. Um, it was hard. Um, I was so scared and I felt like I was, I felt like I was in a dark room, visualizing myself in this dark room, reaching out my hands and just asking him to meet me there. The most terrifying part was not um, fear for my own life, but fear for my family. Um, but fairly quickly, I mean, within one or two weeks of the initial diagnosis, I just felt a peace just cover me. Um, I knew I should be afraid. Um, my nature is kind of fear and anxiety, and yet I just felt peace that none of this surprised him, that he, he knew that this was my path. He knew that I would be diagnosed with cancer. He knows, um, he knows whether I'll live or die. He knows, um, he knows every detail of my boy's lives, of my husband's life, of my life. He knows every detail. I think as a mom, I've really struggled with um, letting go of them. I want their lives to look the way I want it to look. I want to have control over, over their lives and, and protect them. And um, I had, had to come face to face with the fact that I, I may not have that privilege. I had to um, relinquish control of them, of their lives, of their futures, of my husband, of, of his life. Isaiah 43, 1 and 2, it says, But now this is what the Lord says, He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burnt. The flames will not set you ablaze. I felt like that this is a privilege, which is so strange, but such a privilege to be, to be brought to death's door, basically, and and to be allowed um, to feel um, and experience the grace of God in such a powerful way, um, it feels like a privilege. When you're when you have when you're diagnosed with cancer, people talk about the fight, and um, I didn't really know what that meant. What does it look like to fight, um, especially when you? 
are trying so hard to surrender. But then I just kept thinking of this word fight and what does it look like to absolutely surrender but to fight. And I thought, you know, the answer is hope that, you know, um, there's what the doctors say and there's the statistics um, and then there's God and God is bigger. So I started thinking, okay, so absolute surrender, but you got to have hope. You've got to have abundant hope. And so those were, that was the, kind of became my mantra, um, absolute surrender, abundant hope. I feel like the image in my mind of being in a dark room and reaching out my hands has changed. I feel like I, I was reaching out my hand trying to find Jesus, um, but lately the image has shifted and I'm still in the dark room, but I don't have my arms reaching out anymore because he's standing right behind me with his hands on my shoulders. Uh, James 1, 2 and 3 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face tri trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. I've really tried hard not to let myself feel sorry for myself, or, um, but really uh, focus on what a blessing it is to to experience that peace um, that I've I've never felt that before. When you should be just terrified, and and you feel peace. This is that your valley might look a little bit different, and. I would invite you, don't compare yours to Jen's. That's her story. That's where Jesus is leading her. That's where Jesus is out front of her. That's, that's, her, value. that's her valley. Yours might look a lot different. Yours might look like a job you've lost or a relationship that's crumbled or a different health call that you got from the doctor. But at some point, we'll all find ourselves there. I love, I love, I love her line. Absolute surrender and abundant hope. See, this is a person who's learning what it looks like to trust Jesus in every season of life. And the good and the bad, to remember that pain is ine inevitable, that perseverance is absolutely essential, and that his presence is promised on the mountaintops and in the valley low. And I don't know about you, but for me, that's an encouragement to press into my shepherd in this season, wherever season he has me, to trust that he's good, that he's for me. Absolute surrender. I'm a sheep. I'm following. An abundant hope. I trust that you know what you're doing and that you're good. I'd invite you to the same. Would you pray with me? Jesus, for, um, for all of us, we, we come before your throne where people are, angels are, creatures are gathering before you in worship, declaring you're good, declaring you're powerful. And Lord, we want to join with them. So Lord, some of us, we join in the valley. Some of us, we join on the mountaintop. 
some in the joy and some in the pain, some in the beauty and some in the sorrow, but all of us, we gather around your throne to remember you're good. You're the good shepherd. Lord, especially for my friends that are in that valley. Lord, I pray over them right now. In fact, if that's you, will you just raise your hand? You're in that, you're in the valley right now. Life is difficult. Life's hard. Okay, yeah, see hands all over. You're wondering, God, where are you? Yeah. Jesus, I lift uh, these folks especially up to you. May they know your goodness. May they know your presence. May they trust you. Good shepherds, speak. Speak to their souls. In the valley of the shadow of death, may we collectively fear no evil for you are with us. And Lord, we want to be with you. We love you, and it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. This audio is from South Fellowship Church. Feel free to make copies of this message, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit us at southfellowship.org.